container seems to be like the next thing that's going to be relevant to software development. And yeah, yeah, I hear it's the future. The tools are there to really make delivery of software continuous. And the way we think about software delivery has changed. The biggest thing is to understand that at every phase, you're like a little bit different company and you're going to have to reinvent yourself. There's something about being in successful companies that really helps you understand how it needs to be done when it's done right. If you wander around, you will never get anything done. And maybe each one of the things that we're doing were brilliant, but yeah. it doesn't matter because nobody gets to enjoy it. The SATs are not a correlation with eventual success. I think so much of being successful is the ability to work well with other people. No one in the industry knows what they're doing around interviewing. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harba, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Uh, so, Mariana, uh, tell us, what, what is your favorite thing about continuous delivery? So, I think my favorite thing about <coughs> continuous delivery is to think about how software development has evolved to get to this point and how, uh, you know, it used to be where you develop big discrete chunks and now it's more of a, this continuing straight line. And actually, my favorite thing about that is to imagine what it will be <laughs> and think about how one day you're going to write a little chunk of software and get sucked into the system right away and work right away and, so kind of imagining that we're still on this journey that's not complete is uh, probably fascinating. Well, mm. One of my favorite people is here today, and I'd love for her to introduce herself. Oh, thank you. So I'm Mariana Tessel. I work at Docker. I'm one of the executives there. I um, build and run the engineering team, and I'm actually helping with strategic partnership. And we announced uh, a couple, and we're working on a few more, so kind of doing a little bit more strategy and business these days. And um, yeah, and before that, oh, I should I should talk about my past. Yeah, so before that, I was at um, VMware for several years, and before that, I was at uh, Ariba for several years. So kind of doing enterprise and infrastructure for a while. And before that, I was at a company called General Magic, which is actually has an interesting piece of the Valley history. Uh, has uh, was trying to do iPhones long time ago. Mm -hmm. Was trying to uh, basically personal devices, and um, it had a very interesting set of people, a lot of ex-Apple, a lot of people that went off to do a lot of interesting things afterwards, so it was uh, kind of an interesting upbringing um, in the valley. And before that, I was actually in Israel, and my first engineering job was um, uh, in the Israeli military. Wow. Actually. Mm -hmm. So, so that's a really interesting evolution because, I mean, you've, you've, you've seen the evolution from these huge multi-year releases to continuous delivery and even beyond. What are the biggest changes and what do you think is driving this? I think there's probably multiple changes, but obviously tooling and what's available is, is a huge one. If you take it all the way back, I don't know, then, but even before kind of I was in the industry, when people did punch cards, like you had to really think about what you do, I guess then you're going to have to go somewhere where the card can be punched and it has to be loaded to the computer. <clears throat> well, you can imagine that wasn't very... A prime for continuous delivery, you know. Yet over time, and the computers weren't connected and things like that. But over time, the tools are there to uh, really make delivery of software continuous. 
And more important is also the way we think about software delivery has changed mm -hmm. from like these big chunks and lots of uh, discrete planning to kind of more of uh, an ongoing uh, evolution. So I think both kind of this cultural and concept changes as well as the available tools to do that. So you mentioned uh, software being like sucked into the system as soon as you write it or something like that. that, that uh, I think that's a really like fascinating way of, of looking at the world. It reminds me of, of when this was in the early days of Circle, and we no longer do this, when we would actually like REPL into production servers and run code from our editors. But I'd love to I'd love to hear more about like how you think that's going to go. Well, if I had the exact solution, I might have uh, been sitting here with a heavy beat. <laughs> so I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but I'm just kind of thinking that both in terms of the uh, readiness of the servers as well as the tools where you kind of as you edit the thing already like become something that is runnable. Mm -hmm. So you kind of what you write, I don't know, maybe it's like a different language or whatever that is, but everything you write is already runnable. Mm -hmm. And you know, you it's quickly kind of propagates itself into the system even without kind of you can imagine your I don't know, like editor is, is already connected to everything else and right. things. I don't know, maybe it's not going to be even an editor, right? But you know, you you kind of express something and immediately it gets kind of uh, propagated into some sort of a machine code or something that then mm. runs into that can get sucked into the system itself. So it, it, it's funny. This gels a lot with a, the concept I've been thinking about a lot, and and I think we uh, when Sam Stokes was on, we talked about this a, a little bit. And the, the the phrase I use is is for sculpting applications, and uh -huh. the, the the idea is basically that you're. You're kind of editing a live system at a much much higher level than yeah. than it is today. Yeah. You're not you're yeah. not you yeah. know you're not building containers and, and deploying them and orchestrating them. You're you're writing something that has almost no accidental complexity, no no yeah. difference between the problem that you're expressing and the distributed system that that sits under it is sort of hidden in some way. Right, yeah. exactly. So you kind of express yourself at a much higher level than right, it's available right, right. today. And yeah. it's it's funny. I've been writing a lot of um, a lot of Haskell code recently, oh. and I'm shocked to discover that actually the difference between the ideas that I'm trying to express and the ideas that I have to express are like they're they're vastly different. So there's a lot of accidental complexity in a way that that, that I thought uh, they weren't supposed to have. It's very irritating. Yeah. So it's definitely uh, ways to go, and I, I'm sure. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll look back at this conversation and say, "Well, it kind of evolved in a different way." But mm -hmm. I think yeah. the concept of software development is going to continue to change actually quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the way I think of it is just stuff is moving further and further up the stack. I, th I think like VMware was the first pass of we don't really have to care about the machines; we'll just mm -hmm. care about like, a virtualization. Then Docker is the next evolution, right? What made you move from VMware to Docker? What was the impetus to do this? Oh, that's a you know a good question. You know, there's there's probably kind of a, like anything like a personal reason and more of like a, a different reason. So, on a kind of a, a software reason was that I've kind of thought that container seems to be like the next thing mm -hmm. uh, that's going to be relevant to software development. And yeah, I hear it's the future. Yeah, I heard it's the future too. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you know it's the future. I thought it was so 2015 at this point. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so kind of thinking, hey, this is how, and and actually noticing that it came up more and more with users. So you know, I took notice of that, and uh, you know, loving to work on the bleeding edge, and you know, on a personal level, uh, spent a lot of time at VMware already and was ready for a change, and 
really wanted to work on a smaller company. So, mm-hmm. so it was a combination of, uh, of that. And it's funny, so we ran into a friend of yours from VMware, Adam, and I've noted that I know a lot of people who worked at VMware and I admire them all very much. So oh. what do you think was it about that culture that has produced so many great people? You know, I put um, yourself, Martine, Jocelyn, Peter Kazanji, like just great, great, great people. Oh, thank you for saying that. Here's kind of my thoughts. So first of all, VMware was an amazing company and is an amazing company and had an amazing founders, amazing idea. And I had an interesting run. So I think like with any company like this, it attracted good people to join. So uh, good people were interested in joining. So there was a collection of, of uh, good people. And I think culturally it was a, a very good uh, company. It was very much engineering led. But you know, there's something about being in um, successful companies that really uh, helps you understand how it needs to be done when it's done right. Yeah. And I think many of us that had the fortune to be part of the VMware run, you know, had kind of learned, okay, well, here's how it looks like when it mm-hmm. looks right. And uh, here's what it means to win. And, you know, and, and that kind of, I think, helped many of us as we went on. It's funny you hear the same thing about uh, about early stage startups. That like a useful thing for a founder is to have been at like a, a Series B stage company. And it sounds like you're kind of saying the same thing that like for for executives who are who are leading the you know fifty person company to be the thousand person company, having been having been at VMware and seen that working is like a very useful thing to have had. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely gives you a, a real context and example of. How it should be done or can be done successfully, mm-hmm. and that kind of uh, always a reference point that you have. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I look up to Diane Green so much in my in my fantasies. I'm the next Diane Green, and, and because she she did so much at VMware. What, what do you think were the most important cultural lessons there in terms of a successful team? I mean, she's awfully obviously amazing. I have to confess that while I was uh, interviewing while she was there, I took this long break before I started, so I actually never worked when she was there. But kind of her. Her legacy was everywhere, right? And uh, first of all, you know, it's like like I said, it was a very technical company that really appreciated good thinking and good engineering, and that that's always been the case and still is the case. And very much, I mean, I, I even watch her now and like focus on partnerships and kind of win-win seems to be part of what she. Was doing, and I think that have helped the company a lot. And I'm, I'm again, I'm not the right person probably to kind of talk about that. But um, like I said, it, the culturally, the company has always been amazing, and, and definitely, I think the founder set the stage for that. And then, how much of that are you able to like bring over to Docker, or how, how much of of Docker's culture is already set by a sort of the culture that's there before before you arrive? Yeah, it's kind of one of these things that there is a culture that is there and also a culture that's kind of uh, set by the founders and set by the team that's already there and set by the people that you kind of keep bringing. So every time, you, so even though you bring concept from the culture you're familiar with, it's always some sort of this uh, combination of things. It's not like that you really kind of really take up the culture and just Copy it. It's it's mm-hmm. it's almost like impossible to do. It's almost any every company has its own yeah. setup. So it means that it ends up with like a 
a different culture. But you know, like obviously understanding what it means to work in enterprise, understanding how what it means to work with enterprise customers mm-hmm. is like you know we've got a ton of that in the VMware University. Right, so. Right, right, right. <laughs> so you're talking about the lessons learned of selling to enterprises. I think everybody would love those lessons. If you could condense them down, yeah. Okay, this is, this is kind of my view of it. So first of all, obviously you need to understand what they need and partner really, really, really well with your customers, especially with the first early few. Is kind of uh, work with them very closely and kind of keep defining your product as you go with them. And then you know, enterprise they often want a lot of these what do we call enterprise features, like they have uh, specific needs for security, for compliance, and mm. Uh, just something that you you must understand that even though it's maybe you don't feel it like as a core capability of your invention that it just has to be there so they can accept it in their org. The fact that they have a lot of systems already existing or vendors they already work with, and making sure you can integrate with that and appreciate that is is quite important. Understand the pace in which they can take software and will take software. I'm assuming here, like you know, on on this end, is all, you, there's differences, obviously, from on-prem and in the cloud. But so I mean, a lot of these things. And if you are really trying to create a company, maybe I'm a bit jaded because I at VMware that I done a lot with uh, t- like partners. I really mm-hmm. believe that uh, it's uh, you know it's like a village, and you have to really understand how to work with others because it's very rarely that you're like the only software they will right. use. So understanding how to partner both on the business side and on the technology side. So there's a there's an interesting sort of question that that, that I have there around developing software and, and developing out like the feature set around I, I guess kind of the tightrope that Docker has to walk around partners and around the the space and around open source and around sort of high valuations and and, and that sort of thing. It must be must be quite a challenge to to build software under under those circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it's uh, it is very uh, challenging. But you know, I have to I have to kind of say, I wish the world could see how true we are to the mm-hmm. community and how much the team works with the community, with the open source community. There, there's the incoming grade of uh, PRs is is just like mind blowing, and you know the team is so dedicated in mm-hmm. in like understanding what is needed, what the actual users want, and incorporating that and really listening to it. I mean, sometimes to the fact that internal teams they also part of the community. I mean, I had the last year I actually gave a talk on like Docker community and how we deal with it, and one of the points there was that actually our internal team. Is a part of the community as well, mm-hmm. so they also have submit PRs to submit PRs, and they also have to kind of go through the process. And you know, I just wish it's something that was uh, uh, maybe more known. And mm-hmm. the other thing I would say, the community also is built of different parts. I mean, there's like users that actually consume your software. There may be developers that build on top of it. And there's also vendors mm-hmm. that have all sorts of needs from your software that right, are right. legit as well. So it's not kind of a one thing. It's not like you're talking to like a one person that is like community person. Right, right? Right, it's, right. it's 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 a very complex collection of people and companies and different goals. Right. The one that I find fascinating is where you know, the, the, this sort of Kubernetes, which is 
trying to use Docker as as a format, but obviously Docker wants to be much more than that, and and you know possibly wants to have the role of of what Kubernetes does with Swarm, and so there's the need to simultaneously be like I don't want to necessarily say good partners, but like you know partners with that along the same time as trying to build a you know a competing product in 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 the in the same space. I mean, we, we definitely are thinking ourselves more of uh, beyond just the the container. Mm-hmm. Format and like we provide today more of a platform again, like mostly listening to what users users want. But I will also tell you that we very much have the philosophy of batteries included but and but removable. Mm-hmm. So many of these components that we know, like networking, storage, orchestration, mm-hmm. you know, and we, we're gonna even in, include others. Um, we know that that other people want to innovate. We totally allow that, and we actually build the system in a way that that encourages that. And we're gonna continue to improve that. So. So there is recognition that that you know there might be users and customers and vendors that are interested in a different solution. Mm-hmm. We were saying before that uh, we think you have one of the hardest jobs in the valley. Oh, uh, I think I have one of the more fun jobs. In the <laughs> well, it's just it's not an easy job to balance the needs of all those constituents. That's for sure. And and like you said, it's very much uh, under the microscope. Uh, right. Right. Often uh, people kind of uh, have opinions and looking and writing, so that kind of everything is sometimes magnified. In in a... I had this experience a little bit at, at Mozilla, so I, I really liked where, where you were saying that you know the other teams are just community members because at Mozilla it really did feel like there was a difference between the people who were employees of Mozilla that they had a lot more privilege than than external community members. But it was it was interesting that at, at Mozilla. You'd frequently get someone saying something on a mailing list or something like that. It was, it was a very open company, and it being taken as as gospel by you know some member of the press very often, or, or I mean, there wasn't as much Hacker News, but you know the modern equivalent is is Hacker News. And I, I can imagine you know someone at Docker saying, you know, m- making a comment on a PR that that you know gets completely blown out of proportion, or that people you know read their own. Nuance or read between the lines in in just the wrong way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just just kind of recently, I've heard of this PR that was uh, uh, rejected because of like, some security issue. But you know, it was again blown out of uh, proportion. Mm-hmm. Was a discussion it was like, oh, it's rejected because of something else. But you know, so it, it's kind of uh, you're right. Sometimes things are. Mis, uh, misread or misunderstood. You know. our, our, our industry is one that has a lot of negativity and, and perhaps lack of empathy. There's a, always a willingness to, to you know, look for the worst case in, in what people do, and especially in on Hacker News and, and, and that kind of thing. So the idea of, of making something as, as contentious as, as a big open source project is, is frankly terrifying. <laughs> but you find it fun. <laughs> Well, not everything is fun, you know, but <laughs> you know what kind of the big titles is what sells and mm-hmm. my people like a bit of controversy and, and like I'm sure everybody reads those ones that are like, ah, oh, so it's such and such that or this or this, like, you know, collapsing or you know, or people always are drawn to this like more dramatic titles. So I think that that's kind of why they're being pursued and being yeah. commented and yeah. Yeah, so which which ties me back to I mean, um, what do you, what do you think is the biggest change besides more scrutiny and hacker news between mm-hmm. you know making a software project back at General Magic or Ariba and now? Oh wow, you know so much has uh, changed that it's not even funny. But first of all, what's available in terms of 
tooling is like unbelievable. And, and even like a simple thing, like it actually my first job at General Magic was to write a, a web browser for the device. I mean, because the internet was kind of happening and they're like, oh, we really need a web browser for this device. So, you know, and it was like, oh, can you go? Like, we're just HTML3, I think, was coming out. And it was like, can you go? Like, I went to the library to borrow a book about HTML so I can, <laughs> you know, write a web browser to parse it. And you know, like, can you imagine, like, like going to the library? <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, like today, it's 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 Stack like just, Overflow. Yeah, it's just available. So the information that's available to you, the tools that are available to you, there is no like you know, like starting a company before was like a big deal, but today, like, you have the cloud, and you can really quickly. Uh, just get like um, mm. compute resources and and storage resources. Like again, all of these things were like a big deal, and so it was really harder. And this is kind of coming back to continuous deliveries. The tools are available now to really develop in like smaller chunk with higher mm-hmm. speed yeah. and more precision. And you know, it's just it's just great. And you know, I remember Ariba when I was at Ariba on um, the agile kind of the agile methodology kind of came out and. Uh, everybody were like, "Whoa, what is that thing?" And we actually went to get training, and our trainer was uh, one of the people that actually wrote the Agile manifesto, and he was he was like so like. Which one was he? I want to say, I don't want to like misspell the name. So how about I'll I'll check later. <laughs> but you know, very much hardcore in kind of believing in this methodology, and we were uh-huh. all like, "What are you talking about?" And like today, it's it's so clear for people to work in like small teams mm-hmm. and all these things yeah. that people do today. So, but it was very waterfally these the, right. like those days. Well, a, I think a lot of the uh, agile stuff has been watered down. Isn't exactly the the, the word I'm looking for, but like. Yeah, back in the day, they talked a lot about extreme programming, and and there was a lot of of zealotry. Uh, yeah. And I feel that that agile has has gotten to the entire industry now, but the vast vast majority of it doesn't approach it with the same zealotry as it was originally. Uh, yeah. Well, I in, you know I think the thing I would say though is that a lot of people think that agile is kind of a religion that you have to implement in a mm-hmm. very particular way, and I actually found that any implementation of agile is is highly modified, and that you find the agile version that is suitable yeah. for yeah. your product, for your team, for your culture, for you know, and all yeah. of these things. So. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of more subscribe to like, oh, these are all like ideas and methodologies, and you take from it what you want yeah. and you adopt it in the way you want. Right, right. Yeah. What, what were the biggest gains you saw after adopting it? Agile? Yeah. Probably the, like so many things, but you know, probably one of the biggest is how closer we got to the customer. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, I remember like uh, we started having the shorter milestones and uh, connecting to customers really often. And really, kind of think about developing the software in like smaller chunks and smaller teams, and have a team that has a QA inside. And again, today it kind of sounds obvious, but it wasn't obvious for us then. And you know, and I remember like there was one time where we were working on a feature. I think it was Purge and Archive, and we had this brilliant idea. Well, first we're going to implement Purge, <laughs> and then we're going to do Archive. And mm-hmm. we're like talking to this customer, and 
And he was like, why are you talking about purge? You know, like, we have to <laughs> save all this data. You know, we need it for like compliance reasons or whatever. And, but you know, like in engineering might, it sounded brilliant because first, first you figure out how, how to get rid of all this data. Then you figure out how to store it. And mm-hmm. like, it seemed like perfect solution. But the early conversation with customer like, it was like, we're completely on the wrong mm-hmm. track. Um, you know, if I, I, cause you asked me about like the enterprise, uh, what does it mean to enterprise? I guess one thing that I wanted to add that I kind of forgot that you need a lot of patience in the enterprise because there is the enterprise adoption cycle, mm-hmm. and it is what it is, both in terms of like selling, but also in adopting software. So just something that you know, if if you're on an enterprise journey, just just take take like about about like a few kind of patience mm-hmm. pills yeah. or whatever you can find in the pharmacy. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's funny that you talk about, you know, on the one hand you've got like this furious rate of PRs coming in, and on the other hand you're you're, you know, have got the enterprise life cycle, you know, which is much much slower, and and there's yeah, it's, the need to do both, I guess. Yeah, you still have to kind of go through the enterprise adoption cycle, especially for things that go for production, especially for like bigger corporations, and you know, you you kind of subject to all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's funny. I find them um, so we we. We sell to enterprises, and we'll have our champions, and all they—they're like, okay, how do I get procurement to sign off of this? Yeah, how do I get legal to sign off of this? Like, they want to buy, but they have this. Yeah, they have to work through their system. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly that. They're like, I need to work this. I need to let the system digest this project. Right, and like you know, go through all the approvers and all the reviews and all the whatever internal compliance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was one point where we where we started selling to to enterprise and. One of the steps that that you needed to buy was uh, that your purchaser had to have a GitHub account, <laughs> uh, and it's like, well, you know, how, how, how do we sign up? Well, it's you know, you, you go into the thing and you fill in the credit card, and it's it's, it's very straightforward. And it's like, well, how, how do we get in? Like, they need a GitHub account. We're like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the thing is that your purchaser might be somebody exactly. Really it, was, it was someone. It was and and very often the 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 accountants or the people involved in in the accounting department do not have a GitHub account. But that that's what you get if you want to see billing. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to a procurement person who I'm actually I'm actually friendly with. I was like, "How's your day?" And she's like, "Oh, you know, I'm working on this. I'm working on this other project. I'm also buying advertising from the New York Times, and I'm also hmm. buying, you know." <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So I mean, she's procuring everything up to and including lunch darkly and mm-hmm. newspaper advertising. Wow. Yeah. And like companies can also do like all sorts of things. They still want to use your technology, so they don't necessarily as you know advanced with everything as maybe like we sometimes hear feel in the valley, right? So you mm-hmm. can go in a company that maybe does. I don't know, like manufacturing equipment or you know some construction, and yes, they want to use like new technology, but you know, like it's it's kind of you you talking to a whole different world, and you need mm-hmm. to have a bit of uh, language translation there to understand how to to go through it. Mm. Well, I think that's one of the the things that's super powerful about this the bottom up developer adoption. Like, there's going to be someone. You know, in that that manufacturing or construction company, who's who's installing Docker on their own machine, or who's installing GitHub or CircleCI on 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 their little project, and somewhere you know three steps up and two steps across a hierarchy, you know, there's someone that they have to convince to buy that eventually, but that they're able to get it going, get it working without having to get that conversation going. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of the the beauty of 
like developers bringing in software and the ease of adoption and open source and all these mm-hmm. uh, different things. And by the way, SaaS has the same attribute because right. it's so easy to open an account and just to get going. And you know, in AWS, I've, like again, they all have the same attribute. It's for so easy to get going. I mean, I remember a few companies ago when we started using Salesforce, and nobody really decided to. Like start using Salesforce, but somehow we discovered there's like a bunch of people with like Salesforce accounts, and it was like, oh, there's this tool, and that was the. Then we're like, oh my god, we have to move our software to SaaS, and it was mm-hmm. actually at Ariba because it just seems such a brilliant way to yeah of uh, everybody consuming software. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, to, I, I mean, I remember the cost of sales used to be so much higher because you had to have a lot of people who did just stuff like you had solution engineers who would just go and do the POC. Yeah, like you know, so we had an entire staff of people to do POCs because that was the only way, proof of concepts because that was the only way that a customer could see the software. And would yeah. people pay for the proof of concept? No, but it did inflate the actual final purchase price. Right, because you have to pay for all the previous proof of concepts. That didn't yes, work out. yeah. So you'd have to do these two to three months proof of concepts, and you, it was probably the same at Ariba. Yeah, like when you see. Like a company, kind of a, this this upswing uh, that normally means that they had a lot of these like long cycles that went with companies mm-hmm. and they all matured at once. And it's true that when, you know once something becomes very very prevalent, then it's kind of just easier. And I've definitely seen it in in a couple of companies I've been at. It's just easier to close an account and sell and get adoption, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like going back to kind of talking about open source and SaaS, it, I think it's just so important when you write software to understand if you write software to enterprise, what's your in mm-hmm. and how would you kind of, especially can you find like an easy way in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So you two have more in common than I thought. You both have written web browsers. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd say I've written web browsers. I, I've, I've taken part in the Late stage work on a JavaScript engine, so and, Mozilla's JavaScript engine. And you thought about working at Docker? Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah. So, so well, that's a good story. I have to yeah. hear. So in in 2011, I was I was leaving Mozilla. Oh wow! And I, I sent an email to the YC list saying I need a job, and like a hundred people replied. And I think one of the more interesting ones was Solomon, who's, who's the founder of um, of Docker. And at the time, the company was Doc Cloud. So like this was long, long before Docker. Like Docloud was a Heroku competitor, and so I, I went in. I talked to Solomon and I interviewed with a, with a couple of engineers, and they, they had me do the take home project. Take home project was build a distributed web crawler uh, oh, wow. on on Cloud. and I had never really built web stuff before, and I had definitely not built like distributed system stuff, and so Cloud was my first real experience with that, and it was amazing. Like I loved <laughs> Cloud so much; it was such an amazing product. And then they're like, "Yeah, you you don't have enough distributed systems experience, sorry." <laughs> Funny. Well, do, do, do you regret it, or were they right? Or well, I mean, if if I'd taken if I'd taken that job, I would have built Circle. Yeah, it's funny. I, I look at like all the jobs that that I was applying for. Like I was applying for a Dropbox, and and then the, those other companies that have gone nowhere that I was convinced were going to be amazing. But like if I had had one that I was super excited about that that took me, uh, I wouldn't have built Circle. So it, it all works out in the end. Well, you see, it all worked out, and obviously Salman is brilliant. So that's yeah. uh, kind of he had uh, from there went and did Docker, which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's kind of you never know where things are going. So mm-hmm. it's always uh, kind of in retrospect when you go back and you're like, oh, like that step led to that, to led to that. Yeah. 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 Well, so you you've been at Docker not since the very beginning, but since you said it was fifty employees. 
About, yeah, in between 50 and I don't know, maybe by the time I joined a bit more. When, how many are you now? Oh, we're over 250, so quite a bit. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, in a couple of years, we went, like, I guess we multiplied ourselves by five, like five mm-hmm. times. So it's like, uh, right. yeah. It's still a small company at 250 people. <laughs> it is, but it's, it's well, by, it, by, it, by it, VMware standards. By VMware standards, actually, VMware is like again it also went through like multiplying itself every single year. It's, that's been uh, challenging. I remember kind of what somebody pointed out. Do you realize that in like you know like it was one of the all hands in this room? There are more new people that just joined this year than all the people that joined the previous ten years combined. Whoa. It was like, oh my god, that is true, and it's kind of it's kind of tells you how much you have to reinvent yourself when you go through this growth because there's so many new people every mm-hmm. year. Um, so any any lessons learned or things you'd like to share about that experience? Obviously a lot has learned, but you know, I would say the the biggest thing is to understand that at every phase you're like a little bit different company and you gonna have to mm-hmm. re reinvent yourself because you know what was true for 50, not true for 250, and definitely like, I don't know, when I left VMware was 18,000 people or something like that. Oh. Definitely mm-hmm. not true for 18,000 people. So you kind of have to keep reinventing yourself at every single stage. But, you know, and I think it's so important also to have that. We talked about this winning gene or whatever mm-hmm. is understanding how, and but have, have kind of this resolve of like, this is hard, but we can do it and we will do it and we will win. That's like very good DNA to have. Yeah, my um, my advisor Sean Burns, he gave me really good advice. He said, um, "The things you do from one to ten will not work when you go. You're going to need different things to go from ten to a hundred. And he wasn't talking about employees. He was just he was talking about revenue, scalability, mm-hmm. anything. And then a hundred to a thousand, like every unit of ten, you have to change your techniques. Yeah, it's kind of the snake, the right that keeps on peeling a, a skin mm-hmm. and growing new one, as you know. So yeah, you, you absolutely. Yeah. So we started talking about Paul. What were you talking about? React. We were talking about interviewing. Yeah, and hiring. That, yeah. So, so Mariana was saying about uh, your. Uh, I don't know. Can we reveal your your interview question? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How about just say it's a basic concept in you know. <laughs> All right. So, so if you're interviewing for Docker, you should know. Basic computer science concepts. Is it how many bits are in a byte? Pretty um, much. Well, actually, that, that kind of depends on. The, uh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so the discussion that we're having is that I don't really believe that it's it's necessarily important to have basic computer science concepts to be an engineer. And in particular, there's a subset of engineers that I meet who know almost nothing about CS. Right? They've maybe learned front end concepts, or, or, or they're able to like. String things together very quickly, and they they have focus, and those two things allow them to build, you know, very large things, especially if they have product vision as well going into that. But they wouldn't be able to like answer a whiteboard coding question. Yeah, and actually, how we started talking about it is because I didn't know about this story Paul was saying of how he interviewed a bunch of companies and didn't get uh, accepted, and I'm like, wow. It's oh, well, such... I mean, I got, I got some of them. Well, some of them, but yeah, I was sorry, sorry. The ones that you didn't, and yeah. I said, wow, it's such a miss because here's like this amazing. It was also rejected from Dropbox. Mm. Oh, wow. so you know, here's this amazing guy, right? That had went ahead and founded such a great company, and like you know, the that clearly the interview has missed that. Um, I mean, no one in the industry knows what they're doing around interviewing. Like, um, I, I agree. Google had this had this number that came out recently that fifty percent of the people they hire 
after this, you know, grueling and intense process, turned out not to work out. It's like fifty percent. Fifty percent. And yeah, Google yeah. is famous for its interviews. So it's not that they they don't work out, but like the correlation, fifty percent of the people they hire. Are are successful in the way that they were expecting them to be, or, or something along those lines. That's crazy. It reminds me of so they have the SATs in the states, mm-hmm. and there's always this thing like the SATs are not a correlation with eventual success. Okay. I think so much of being successful is the ability to to work well with other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and have a persistence because you have difficulties and you want to overcome them right. and. I, I think focus is a big one. Yeah. Like the, the, it's it's very very easy to keep chasing the next shiny thing, and especially in companies, uh, and I think a lot of companies are like this today, where where you're kind of not quite encouraged, but like certainly not discouraged from having side projects and sort of you know you come in with a with a PR that that you weren't told to work on, and and maybe it's a good thing or or maybe not, and so like the, there's this sort of. Um, you know the next shiny thing syndrome, and if you can avoid that and and you can stay focused on your thing, you can you can deliver so much stuff. And if you keep going for the next shiny thing, often you'll have like 10, 15, you know, eighty percent finished projects that never actually cross the line, and, and as a result, you've made nothing. You know, there's several years ago there was this blog that came out that talked about, uh, and I'm, I'm forgetting the source of that, but um, talked about how you, in, when you hire, you need to hire smart people that know how to get things done. Yep. Oh, that's uh, Joel Spilkey. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I think it's so right. But I would add to that, I also like the soft skills. But this kind of goes to your point yeah. is that if you wander around, you will never get anything done. And maybe each one of the things that we're doing were brilliant, but yeah. it doesn't matter because right. nobody gets to enjoy yeah. it. And ninety percent yeah. of a brilliant project is is zero. Yeah, yeah. I was I was talking with a, a friend who works at a big software company we won't name, and he said he loved Agile because before they would have these year long projects, and what would happen eight months in was the business would change their mind. Yeah. Wow. So they basically had gone. <laughs> they by the time they released it, it was obsolete. Well, they couldn't even. Yeah. It would, they would work for eight months, and the business oh, would they, say, and yeah. in defense, because I'm business now, like the mm-hmm. market changes. Yeah. yeah, they're like whatever you started working on for eight. It's not what we want anymore. Work on this anymore. So they had this continual string of the continuous non-delivery. Yeah, mm-hmm. continuous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So he he loved Agile because he said, you know, we we break it into smaller chunks, but it's guaranteed to get done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of engineers like not having structure, and one of the things that that I think is best about about Agile and and you know, the the various tracks of Agile is. That structure helps you get things out the door, helps you get them to customers. When you look at the product function, you know, there's the get things to, to five customers, there's get things to fifty customers, there's get things to all your customers. Like it's it, it's not just writing code that's involved yeah. in that. Yeah. Um and, and you need that kind of structure to be able yeah, to Yeah, I mean if for the in the daily scrums and like definitely when you do like this burn down charts, you get to a lot of details and right, right, right. it's you know, but, but it doesn't I mean, feel if, quite as Suffocating, you know. Well, I mean, if if you tell an engineer that, like, oh, we're gonna have a daily scrum, and you're gonna have to be in at a certain time to <laughs> to get to that, and then we're gonna have a burn down meeting, and there's gonna be like two weeks, of, and like you just keep, keep going, they're like, oh my god, meetings, and it's like, I just, I just, I just want to write code. Let me write code. What, what if you tell them that you bring chocolate? <laughs> I, I, was, I was going to say something about chocolate, and then I started thinking about like the the the, the culture of like goodies and and, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm iffy. On, you you bring shiny thing to yourself. It, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I'm the worst at this. Like, I need external pressure to stay focused on a particular 
thing. I, I don't know if it's ADD, but like it feels like really bad ADD. And like having customers as the external pressure was like really, really useful to like <laughs> oh, wow. to like getting things done in, in in the early stage. And then when you're at the stage where where there's like less external pressure or different external pressure, I guess it's not it's not specific. I, I found it much much more difficult to get things done. I, I think the lack of customers can be very awful for projects ever getting delivered. Right, right. As soon as you have customers, it's like, oh, of course you're going to get things done because there's someone yelling for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were going to say something. No, I was saying like that provides you the focus you need because we talked about being focused mm-hmm. and suddenly there's a deadline, there's a need, there's a person. So then you're like, oh, I have to be focused on that. And yeah, yeah, uh, no, nothing like urgency to to get something across a deadline. I, I totally agree. I think we all need that. No. Yeah. So something I found interesting is uh, so Paul today was showing off his shiny new green card. Yay, you can't kick me out now. Congratulations. Which, by the way, is green. Um, I I was actually surprised that that the green card was physically green. (laughs) Yeah, so um, what what made you both decide to come to the States? I mean, Ireland has a really booming software industry, as does Israel. What what made you decide to come here? Yeah, so um, actually, you know, I told you that my first engineering job was in the military, and in Israel it's compulsory. So I, I went to this program where I went first to school. And when I graduated, I did my compulsory service, and it was, I served for a while. And um, then I did what many people do after they finish their military service. I went traveling, and uh, we went uh, with my husband went to India and Nepal and Thailand, and we spent uh, several months backpacking. And then we had friends here in the in the Bay Area. We decided to stop by, even though it's not really on the way. Mm. But when you kind of take a big plane <laughs> ride, everything seems on the way. Uh, and we stopped here. She was doing like PGS Sanford, and he was working here. And we came here, and it was like, wow, we love that place. We were both engineers, and we're like looking at all the companies here, and it just seemed like unbelievable place for, and it still is for people that that do uh, software. And we kind of uh, stayed here, and you know, I I still think it's the most amazing place for uh, software development and. It's yeah. fascinating. I, I have exactly the same story. Really? Yeah. So uh, I mean, I, I wasn't with my husband in Nepal. How about India? Were you were you were you in the Irish military? <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very famous. Um, it's, 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 it's a it's a very stealth military. People don't really know that much about it. I'm I'm not going to make a joke here. So so what, what happened was I I got into um, I got a paper accepted in a conference in Hawaii. Oh, uh, and uh, from from Dublin, San Francisco <laughs> is on the way, and so I was like, "All right, I'm going to fly through San Francisco, and I'm going to see if anyone will let me will let me give a talk." Uh, and so I convinced the guy I knew at Google to to uh, give a Google Tech talk, oh. uh, and then I gave a talk at Facebook, and I gave another one at, uh, at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. And so when I came over, obviously, like the you know my, my grant is paying for for all the flights, and you could stay in a fancy hotel. But instead, I saw this. Um, on Hacker News, I saw someone advertised their uh, their hacker house in oh. in Palo Alto. This is about two thousand and nine, and it was on this site called uh, AirBedAndBreakfast.com. <laughs> and so I stayed like literally on an airbed in a in a hacker house in in, in Palo Alto, and all the all the guys in the house were going through Y Combinator. Wow. And I was just like, oh my god, there's just there's all these people who are who are just like building their ideas, and there was no money at the time. Like it was 2009. It was right after the the 2008. 2008 yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was uh, no money. That. There there was no money. The only ones from that batch who were really able to to fundraise were Airbnb. But everyone was just like building their stuff, and they were super excited. And in Dublin at the time, 
I mean, you, you described that Dublin is is you know the the sort of second city of tech in in, in yeah. a certain way. There's there's Intercom. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, and, Circle CI has an office there, and every every like every San Francisco company has uh, you know their second office is, is in Dublin, their their European headquarters, and but I mean at the time it wasn't quite like that. Google was there, and and sort of Facebook maybe was kind of getting set up around then, but it wasn't really the same. And the the things that mattered in in Ireland when I was sort of in my twenties were you know real estate and construction and finance. Uh, and and software is just like no one gave a shit, uh, and so you get somewhere where like suddenly you know software is everything, and not only uh, that but cool. Yeah, ex- exactly. Like it, it was like immediately I was like I ha- I have to move here. Yeah, you can write software and be cool at the same time. Right, right. Like, it, was, it was shocking. <laughs> so I, I did not. I was not in the military. Um, what? <laughs> I have been in Nepal, but um, it's funny because I, I moved to Texas as part of the dot com. Bust. So my company got bought. I moved there, and in hindsight, I realized you, you were here before the bust, and then you had to move to Texas. Yeah, wow, uh, that's the worst. Oh, it was in Austin, and but I, I realized now that it was Austin that was still kind of working its way out of the dot com dregs itself. Mm-hmm. Like literally, Intel had started to build a huge headquarters downtown, and then the recession hit, and there was this empty shell because they did not have the money to finish it, and they didn't think they would ever have the workers to be in it. Wow. wow! So finally, they they just dynamited the whole building because it was an eyesore. I mean, so th- this yeah. is the state of Austin, and it came back to San Francisco because it was the same thing. I was like, wow, people are building cool stuff here. Mm. What what year did you come back? I came back in two thousand seven. Right. Um, just in time for the two thousand eight recession. Yeah, nice, nice. But um, it was the same sort of feeling of Austin at the time was dead. Think mm. It seems like we all came here for the love of software and love of tech and love creating mm. product. You know, and honestly, there's so many people like this here. It's just is amazing. Like every day, and like the people you meet, the people you work with. I don't think there's a second place like that. Well, no. Okay. So, so it's uh, I. So that would have been a perfect time to end, Paul. But I mean, we still can. We still can. <laughs> that would have been like a perfect. Like, <laughs> we controversial. And then Paul um, jumps in with the yeah. No, I mean, I, the I, well. I, I kind of feel that the the feeling that I had in two thousand and nine of like people just into software and you know, building things. I feel that it's not what San Francisco is anymore. Like mm-hmm. I feel that you know it's it's kind of a gold rush now, uh, mm. and it feels like what I imagine. New York felt like during the uh, finance rush of like yeah. 2006, oh, 2007, where just kind of like you know busloads of graduates just like move here to to chase their dreams, and I don't necessarily feel that that's a bad thing. I mean, I chase my dream here, and and um, it's it's a great place for for people to do it. It just it doesn't feel like it did in 2009 when when I wanted to move here. But do you agree they're like both like both people that that. You know, not just chasing, but really want to do like great things. Sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, people are. I think people are are sort of sort of moving here for the same reason, but it's not it's not the same people. So Mm. it's like you know, you were talking about. Are you you, telling them to get off your lawn? No, no. So so I'm emphatically not trying to tell them to get off my lawn. I'm I'm just saying that, like, you know. But but if you were to have a lawn, I'm I'm just saying that the garden party isn't isn't the one that that I used to enjoy going to. I guess I have. I mean, in the same, we've been here. I mean, I haven't been here as long as you, but I think there's always the sense that the new people are not as cool as the people who've been here for a while. Yeah, the people mm. that came here in the nineties are like the coolest, by the way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, th- I think they they don't really talk to us. They they own all the property and and. <laughs> she's she's here doing a podcast with us. Yeah, fair enough. 
You um, know, you're like the cool people. <laughs> I, I do think I, I completely agree with you that um, I feel like doing a startup now is like being in a band in Seattle in the nineties, yeah, yeah. or being a screenwriter in mm. LA, or being mm-hmm. an actor in New York. Like, mm. what all these four things have in common is there's basically zero qualifications to claim you're doing any of these. You know, you can just say I'm writing a screenplay if you open Microsoft Word once mm-hmm. and wrote, written. Like, I mean, that's kind, that's kind of the beauty of it, or at least. I feel I feel it was the beauty of it when when there was very few people writing screenplays or there were very few bands or whatever analogy we want to pick. But one, I think one, I think New York has always had actors though. Has it? Okay. <laughs> For people who just love software, I'm not sure San Francisco is like the most amazing place anymore. Where where is the most yeah. amazing place? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't I don't know if there is one. This, this this sounds like the beginning of a movie where like Paul <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul, Paul, Paul gets in an RV and, and, and drives around America for a couple of months figuring out the writing my novel or my, my great my great programming language finding the Zana do of development yeah well we really enjoyed having you here any any I had any a lot final, of fun final? as for the record I still think it's uh, in the Bay Area but you know and she she was in the military so I'm gonna agree with her. Yeah, I, like you have to agree with me. Yes, I, I should too. Veiled <laughs> <laughs> <The old> threat. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of Circle CI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Mm-hmm.